Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being back. And to all of you that have had a busy afternoon, thank you especially, as I know that this is an extra effort. So I will tell you that tonight we will not, absolutely, unconditionally, we will not go past 8 o'clock, okay? And I also do not plan on going past where you all have asked your questions. So, um, but before we jump into that, let's ask the Lord to be with us tonight. And uh, we had a great service this afternoon. And um, I asked Margaret if she thought I should have Eugene back to speak. And she said, yeah, he was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but he has a big head, so we don't want to feed it too much. Yeah, he does now. He does now. Anyway, no, um, we appreciate, we appreciate uh, Dr. Wilson being with us. And one of the things that in, in addition to pouring into the team that he is doing, as uh, Meg mentioned today, is that he does a lot of, of writing and speaking and, and really in all honesty right now is one of, if not the premier voice within our movement dealing with leadership. And so the second reason that I asked him, I, I went to him and I said, Eugene, I, somebody needs to, in some form or fashion, capture what is happening here, this story of this transition. And I said, are you interested? And he uh, was pretty emphatic saying, absolutely. And so uh, part of it is him observing some of this and kind of, and so tonight is even part of, he's kind of going to be sitting there watching and listening. And if you see him typing on his phone or something, He's probably taken down in notes and things like that, that we may show up as a footnote or maybe a chapter or maybe even a book. Who knows? We will see. But I did not want to write that myself. I may in the future write about this journey a few years from now about what it's like to do this transition from a single person's vantage point. But the overall story, uh, particularly of the pastoral team, um, Eugene's kind of we're playing with him possibly capturing that. So that's a second reason. And so it kind of worked out tonight. We didn't plan it, I'll be honest with you, but it worked out that he'd been able to be here and see the dynamics of this as well. But let's start with prayer and ask that the Lord would be in our midst. And like I said, we've already had a good service today and we're thankful for God being present. Aren't you glad that God is paying attention to us? I really am glad that God's paying attention. If we're doing this on our own, this would be a problem. But the Lord is walking with us, and so we're appreciative of that. So we want him to be in our, in our midst tonight, and uh, welcome to everybody that's online as well. So join with us, whether you're online or you're here present with us. Let's ask the Lord to be in our midst. Jesus, we love you tonight. God, we thank you for the opportunity to serve you. And God, thank you for the reminder this morning that while we do serve you, and you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we are your children. We are your sons. We are your daughters. And help us to walk in that, walk in that gift, walk in that blessed place, Lord. And so, God, we acknowledge you as the sovereign king, and we ask that you would be present in our midst and let your will be done, even in our process that we are engaged in here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. All right. Also, another thing is I'm going to try to stay in this little quadrant here because of the camera. So I'm not trying to stay distant from you all. In fact, I really want to get out and reach you and touch you and all those kinds of things. But if I do that, the camera starts looking a little funny, like they'll see a beheaded man or so forth. So that's what I'm doing there. So let me remind you all at the outset, and I'm going to constrain these opening comments to about five minutes, okay? 
that let me remind you of the process that we're in the middle of. All right. So at our annual business meeting at in the first Sunday of March of this year, you all voted for us to make all necessary preparations for a final decision regarding changing the name of the church so that it would be more scalable. And we have already articulated that that that's being considered is Jacob's well. And second, to change the structure such that when I resign, that I am succeeded not by a single pastor, but by a team of pastors. In both of those votes, you affirmed by a supermajority plus. More than two-thirds of you said, yes, please proceed. 79%, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, 79% for the name and 81% for the structural change. So, with that permission, and I told you that I had not made plans beyond that, I had waited for your decision there, your indication as a congregation. With that decision, I then spent the basically the rest of March thinking about how can we best vet, question, examine, and understand the legal documents that would make these changes if the congregation were to, in March of 2023, this upcoming year, vote yes to both of these propositions. And so what I arrived at was a fairly thorough process. It's broken into three phases. Each phase is just on its own. It's not successive. Phase one deals with the preamble and articles one and two of the bylaws. Phase two deals with article three of the bylaws. And phase three deals with a bunch of articles in the bylaws, but they are all mainly boilerplate things like when you have an annual business meeting or how you amend the constitution. There's a lot of articles, but they're very short and they're very boilerplate, as well as our articles of incorporation, which are the same except for one modification uh, to make them align with the new structure. That would be handled in phase or in stage three. What happens in each stage? Stage one, stage two, stage three. We're in the middle of stage one or get coming to its completion. What we proposed to you, and I've articulated this before, but I'm reminding you tonight. What we propose to do is to take the bylaws that are based upon our bylaws that we have had since 1999. So that's point number one that I want you to, to know is that unless there was a reason either to update language, because I'm unlike Eugene, I do not want to say fishes. Okay? So to update language, which is largely just making things sound like the way we talk now. Or it was structural. Unless those two were impacted, the structure of the bylaws and the content of the bylaws is largely the same as what we passed in 1999. So that's point number one. We didn't start from scratch. Point number two is that the senior pastoral team or the pastoral team, depending on whether you want to talk about the future structure or the current structure, 
along with myself, and that includes, by the way, those that we've already sent to Vanuatu. So this includes not only everyone that is currently working in our midst, but also Desi and Rachel. We all worked on and drafted those language and structural changes. That was actually done months and months ago. So then as we move into these phases, that draft is reviewed or vetted by, first, all of our ministry team coordinators. And what they do is they represent a level of leadership. They are not uh, on the pastoral team. They're not senior pastoral team members. But they're also working with teams of people and providing leadership to the congregation. So I thought them as a group would be a nice group to get their vetting, their questions, their concerns as they're having to operate in a manner within the structure of the church. Once that was done, and by the way, I do that in the first month of each of these three iterations. So I met with them in April. Then it goes before the advisory board. The advisory board are six members of the congregation who represent you in matters of financial accountability on a quarterly basis and policy. So another level of understanding, another level of perspective. And so they were met with in May, and we vetted the bylaws. Before I even got to the ministry team coordinators and to the advisory board in this first of three iterations, I already had contacted the general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, Brother David Bernard, who, if you do not know, is a lawyer himself. That is his background. And I basically gave him a very thorough update of what was happening in Newark and also what was happening to me personally. I've worked with Brother Bernard for a number of years at the graduate school, and so personally I felt it was appropriate to let him know what was happening with me as well as with, with the congregation. But I asked him specifically for a recommendation of a lawyer within our midst who would be willing to, in a general sense, legally vet these bylaws, general legal principles, general structure. And he gave me a lawyer's name who actually himself has been a pastor. And so that actually was good to me because that, as a pastor, you understand how a church is operating, not just in theory, but in actual operation. So before I got to the ministry team coordinators, we had already taken the entirety of the bylaws and the articles of incorporation and vetted them legally. Now, fast forward, I also now have a lawyer, uh, probably the correct term, even though I haven't given her a dollar, is that she is on retainer that basically in October she will take our bylaws and she will vet them completely for compliance with specifically Delaware law. So we have general legal vetting already done unless we make some substantial change, in which case we will take it back to that lawyer and get that lawyer's input. And then we will do legal compliance with Delaware law, make sure we don't have any exceptions anything that we've stepped on in Delaware's particular law so that we're legally compliant both in our Articles of Corporation and in our bylaws. You're the final piece. So we started with the original bylaws. The senior pastoral team drafted a new set of bylaws based upon the name change and the structural change. That was legally vetted. That was then vetted by the ministry team coordinators. That was then vetted by the advisory board and now it's coming to you. And we'll do that two more times. So the goal is, is that by the time we reach January of 2023, 
this document will have been vetted from two different legal vantage points by the senior pastoral team, by the ministry team coordinators, by the advisory board, and by you. I don't think I can do any better than that. It's probably the best vetted bylaws of any church, period, bar none. Which, by the way, I love you all. You get the best. <laughs> I'm giving you the best I got. So tonight's goal is if any of you find something substantial that needs to be changed within it, I'll be surprised. I'm not shutting you down from finding it. But my first goal here tonight is for, as part of vetting, is that you can ask questions so that you thoroughly understand your bylaws. That's our main goal. In the process of doing that and in the process of answering those questions, there may arise something that legal missed, that the senior pastoral team missed, that I missed, that the ministry team coordinators missed, and the advisory board missed. Now, I'm doubtful of that, but it could happen. And if it does, I want you to understand what will happen. That note, I will tell you, that is a valid point and we need to discuss that. And that point will then be taken back to the senior pastoral team and if necessary and appropriate, back to legal and a decision will be made and we will report back to you in a future session of what the resolution of that is. Again, my goal is, is that when we reach the annual business meeting, this is so important, and it has enough complicatedness to it or unfamiliarity to it that to thoroughly discuss it, ask questions, answer those questions, and adjust the document all within an annual business meeting seems to me unreasonable. So if those of you that think about a business meeting where a resolution or a proposition is brought and there's discussion and amendment and so forth that happens, we're already doing that across this nine months so that we're not rushed, so that you can ask every question that you have, so that you can thoroughly understand what is being presented to you, and then that will allow us to be in a much more peaceful, prayerful, and sound-minded place to say yes or to say no. And on each of these, if two-thirds of the congregation says no, the one-third that says yes will submit themselves to the decision of the two-thirds. That's mutual submission. And I will also be one of those submitting. If two-thirds says yes and one-third says no, then that one-third that says no should also practice mutual submission and submit to the will of the body. But we want to come to that place and to that decision in a manner that gives everyone a chance to understand and to question and to thoroughly understand what is going on so that a, a reasoned decision, a prayerful decision, and a decision where there's no question that the process has been deliberate. That's my key. I want you to know that we've been deliberate and nobody's being shoved into anything. Okay? So that's where we are tonight. That's what we are. We're looking at the, at the preamble. We're looking at Article 1, and we're looking at Article 2 with regard to 
the bylaws. Any questions or comments or that with regard to Article 3, I need you all to be disciplined and not get into it tonight, but rather allow us to work our process, and we will deal with that in September. Did I remember correctly? Yes, September 4th. And then, of course, the rest we'll deal with December 4th. Okay? So all of you have had this made available to you, whether you downloaded it or whether you just read it on the website. I have it also here on my iPad available to me if we get, need to get into specific details. But I want to, I know that there's some of you that have made contact and there's a few questions that have come up along the way. I feel tonight to simply open the floor. Caleb has a microphone, and so if you have a question that has to do with it, and I will tell you, don't get mad at me, but if you ask a question that comes in a later section, I'm going to defer that question. I won't answer you tonight, and I'm going to defer you to the proper section. So don't feel bad about that, and don't feel like I'm correcting you about that, but I want to keep us focused so that basically by the time we end tonight, we can pretty much say the title of the document for the bylaws the preamble and Articles 1 and 2 have a bow on them. I'm not saying something else couldn't arise. In fact, our lawyer, our Delaware lawyer, might have some compliance issues, and we would bring that back to you. But we kind of put a bow on it. Then we'll turn to Article 3. And by the end of September, we'll have a bow on that. And then we'll do the remainder of them, and we'll be done at the end of December. Okay? So I'm going to open it up at this point if anyone has any questions. Um, any comments? I'm assuming that you've read the document, that you're working it through. And I also know that this first step is going to be a little clunky because nobody wants to be the first person asking a question. And I understand that, so I will be patient. But if you have a question, raise your hand. Caleb will be my runner and bring you a microphone. The reason for the microphone is so that those that are online can hear. Regina will also let us know if somebody online has a question, and then we'll, we'll bring that to you as well. Anybody got any questions about preamble, Article 1, Article 2? Did you mute me, Cassandra? Oh, don't mute me yet, not until we got a question. Okay. Anybody asking questions online? All right. Well, Eugene, I might have taught it so well they don't have any questions, but I'm not guaranteed of that. You need to because I need the people. Those that are online. Go ahead, Caleb, and take it to her. I read um, the whole article. I read it all, but I don't remember um, what Article 1, 2 were. So maybe that would help us. So first of all, you have the title of, of what we are, Jacob's Well Incorporated. Then you have the preamble, which other than the name change has been the preamble. It basically states our purpose. What, what we're about within our bylaws. 
Article 1 defines the assembly itself, again, reiterating or stating explicitly the name. That's Section 1. And Section 2, the purpose. Why do we exist? And then Article 3 is membership. And membership is broken up into eligibility, who's eligible to be a member. Section 2 deals with admission. What's the process by which you actually are admitted as a member? And number three, your obligations as a member. So basically introductory paragraph, Article 1, the assembly itself, which includes the name and its purpose, and then Article 3 is membership. Okay? Did I say three? I apologize. Article two is membership. Article one is assembly. Of the three that we're dealing with, preamble, article one, and article two, the first one is, is a general introductory. The second one, which is article one, is the, is the assembly. And the third one, which is actually article two, as Leela just pointed out, is membership. How are we members? Okay. So, did anybody have anything that jumped out at them? Anything that bothered them? I'm going to point some things out to you, but I'm not going to do that right away. I want you to be able to be in control of this conversation before I do that. Anybody have any comments, questions, concerns? my exercise in so I um I quickly glanced over it real fast and uh one of the clauses I guess for admission is I guess if you're a member from another church wanting to come to this church um I guess it was said you had to give a written it had to be a, of a written letter or verbal conversation would that verbal conversation be of a member from the pastoral team that you sit with in private and then you guys discuss that over that and how that's conducted so this is a good question Part of it refers to another document that some of you may be familiar with, but some of you may not be, which is basically some structure within the United Pentecostal Church about how we conduct ourselves ethically. So the United Pentecostal Church mandates that a pastor is required to supply a letter of transfer to someone who is leaving their congregation. Okay, And so that's part of what is being referred to there. Now, in practice, some of our ministers or pastors, I will give the benefit of the doubt, haven't read the manual, like many of you hadn't read the bylaws. Others, let's just be honest, pastors sometimes are hurt when people decide that they're going to leave and go somewhere else, even if it's done under the best of ethical standards. When we invest in you, we're human. 
and it hurts when you leave. And so some of them take that out where they don't comply. They don't provide the letter of transfer. And sometimes there's a circumstance where there is a problem with the people that are leaving. They're not leaving under good terms. They've not conducted themselves appropriately or things like that. And rather than be honest in the letter of transfer, not be mean, not be nasty, but be honest and, and supply to wherever they're going, the terms under which this person or this family is leaving, the pastor simply ducks that, avoids it. So there's a number of reasons why what we really want to have happen, and if you fast forward to your obligations, we say the seventh obligation that you have as a member is if you leave, that you request from us a letter of transfer so that you are able to then go to another congregation and be in good standing. We do supply you the letter of transfer and we will supply you the letter of transfer, even if our feelings are hurt, even if we're sad, or even if you've been an absolute pill. Your bad behavior does not give excuse for us to have bad behavior. Okay, but Mars question addresses what happens if that letter of transfer is not supplied. So the gold standard would be that every church would supply that letter of transfer and it provides an ethical movement. Churches do not own you. You all know that. I've taught you that. I've preached that to you. Dad before me did as well. We do not own you. You are free to come to where you and God feel that you're supposed to come. But freedom does not equal absence of ethics. Your church home matters, and if you're moving from one to another, you should do so in an ethical manner. So the oral is simply the provision that if a person's coming to us, Martavis, and that pastor, for whatever reason, is not really, they're just not administratively up on what they're doing, or they think it's dumb that they got to provide the letter of transfer, well, it's part of their ministerial obligations, but that we can actually reach out if things are hospitable, if things are acceptable, and actually have an oral conversation. A member of the pastoral team would reach out and speak to that pastor and receive a verbal release. We prefer that we follow the letter of our obligations, that we write a letter. But we know that there's times that that doesn't happen. And so rather than hanging up the person who would like to become a member and be active within this church and who's doing so in an ethical manner, we can have an oral conversation. And so, yes, to answer the explicit part of your question, it'd be a member of the pastoral team. When someone comes, and if that letter's not supplied, and they say, hey, I'm already, you know, I'm already a believer. I've already been filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm already baptized in Jesus' name, but I, I am coming from this church. How do we handle that in an ethical manner? Preferred letter, but we will allow the oral to occur. Now, I will take that opportunity because it's in the same vein, to point out to you that you will also notice that membership, if that written or verbal is not able to be supplied, then what happens is, is there is, for lack of a better term, there is a one-year period by which they can qualify themselves simply by um, their belief and qualifications in the Articles of Faith, and assuming the obligations of membership that are specified within this bylaws, and by doing so for one year. So if somebody, the basic way to say that is if somebody comes here for one year, and for whatever reason, a letter or a verbal 
assent hasn't been given one year after they come, if they fulfilled those obligations, they have membership. Uh, Caleb? If I heard Martavis right, he was asking about the one who was transferring sitting with a member of the pastoral team. The, the one transferring in sitting with the pastoral team. The, the verbal is not with that person. It's with the former pastor. All right. So when we speak of the of the verbal transfer that means that is on a level of pastor to pastor so the transfer of a letter by written is pastor of the church where you were coming from would write a letter and it can be a very simple letter i've written many letters of transfer it doesn't need to doesn't need to have your cv in it it, it just needs to simply state that so and so has been a member of our church and we release them and we wish them well it's that simple, and that's what I have always done, all right? If in the, in the most extreme case there is a problem, I will address that at its highest level and offer the opportunity for that pastor to reach out and contact me with further questions. And honestly, many pastors do not, and that is fine. I wish those people well, and I hope it goes well. So that's how the written would work. The verbal is simply, again, if they haven't written it, it would be, us, one of our pastoral team members, would reach out to whatever church they're coming from and ask to speak to the pastor and make sure that they're being released. Now, if that pastor says, no, I don't release them. I think they're a bad egg and I don't like them and they need to go to hell. And, and, I, and, I, and I had to say this, but every once in a while, pastors get that upset and that hurt. When that happens, I'm going to be very kind and gentle to that person, and I'm going to say I'm really sorry that that happened, but this is really simple. You have the right to determine where you go to church. Come to church, fulfill your obligations for one year, and at the end of one year, your membership will be in place. Okay. Good question with regard to that. And there are a number of you that have come from other congregations, not congregations that didn't have truth or that, but no, you, you came from apostolic congregations elsewhere. And we have tried to conduct ourselves appropriately with regard to that. Part of the, we are obligated flat out to operate this way with regard to all United Pentecostal Church churches. I have tried to the best of my ability to do so where I could clearly ascertain that it was an apostolic church, even if they were not a United Pentecostal church, that I would still conduct myself in, the, in, those, in that ethical manner. Okay? Have I not answered it? Do I need to answer it publicly? Because we're losing, I don't want a sidebar. What you just described, you said um, 
it would it would be a between a pastor and a pastor conversation, you know, that oral presentation or whatnot. But the idea here is that us changing the name to Jake as well and particularly changing the pastorship to a team centric, there would be a team of pastors, not a pastor over those team of pastors. So technically it it would just be like a toss up, like you're rolling the dice to pick which pastor you're, you're yeah. Okay. Because it again it alludes forward, but I can answer this without getting into Article Three. Nobody hired my father; he started the church. My mother and I didn't vote on him. We were the only we were the only members. All right, so I understand that 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 my father was a different scenario. You all did hire me. My father retired informed you, recommended me to you, and you voted, okay? Once you did that, I had a job description that was laid out within the bylaws. But then the specifics of how I carried out that job description, you trusted me to figure that out. In fact, if I didn't figure that out, I would assume that you all would have taken steps or measures to remove me find a way to address that. I have been very, very careful in leading this team and in leading you all for you to understand that there is a shift from one person with two ears and the brain in between to some undesignated number, whether it be five, whether it be three, which is the minimum, whether it be 11, which is the maximum, which means whatever number that is, let's take four because I can do that easily in my head. That means you got eight sets of ears and four brains. But what you have to understand that when it comes to carrying out the obligations that you've been used to one person doing, you now have a multiplied factor of, in this example, four people doing it. You didn't expect me to tell you about the inner workings of my brain. You expected me to follow my job description, to carry out my obligations, to take care of my duties. And so we have to be very careful, because this is a new system, that we not assume that now because there are four brains and eight ears, that that then needs to be how do those four people work together? Bottom line for you is they need to work together and they need to fulfill the job. And if they do, that's good enough for you because the specifications of it is their obligations, their authority, and their responsibilities, which I won't deal with tonight because that's all in Article 3. Okay? So who, who has that verbal conversation will be totally marred, not a toss-up. It will work as a part of the decision-making and the process and the structure of the senior pastoral team of how they interact and work together. And, and so it's, it's really not, it's not specified in the bylaws. You're trusting that that team of people will know how to work together. That's the key point. The plus of it is, is that you have more than one person to fulfill all of the duties and the responsibilities that are a part of being a pastor. And that has been my point to you, is that if you are to fulfill 
something more to allude to Dr. Wilson's message this morning that God has for us. You need more than simply one pastor. But who does what within regard to that? It won't matter. It means a, a pastor from the senior pastoral team will in fact interact with the pastor of another church on behalf of that transfer of a person. Okay? Do we have a question? And from Rick Carter. And um, if it's not for tonight, it, you can let him know that. But the question is, I figured, who will be the senior, who will the senioral, he wrote it funny, but who will the senior pastoral team be accountable to? The same entities I'm accountable to. Nothing's changed in that. Now, the details of that is in Article 3. Remember what I told you. You got one pastor. All we're doing is taking one and replacing with either three or 11. I don't have an extra one. <laughs> so the same structure. But details of that, yes, are Article 3. Okay? Article 3. So... If you're really curious, you can go home and read tonight before, before you go to bed. Maybe you've already read it, so you kind of know the answer to it. But we'll address that specifically if it's not clear uh, in September. But it is in Article 3. Good. We're starting to warm up. Any questions further? Any comments? Any Anything with regard to? I am happy with going down to the level of detail that we need to go to because I really, this is an important, important move. And having you fully informed is a valuable thing. So I, I appreciate you being here, and I appreciate it. Yes, we have another question. I'm, I'm switching gears here only because of uh, what we've been doing um, with some of the teams in which I've been working with. Um, it involves uh, eligibility and admission. And um, I've been approached several times before, and the conversation has come across um, once at a funeral to someone else in the congregation, and then to others in a past experience. Uh, eligibility scrutinizes the moralistic approach that you are constantly walking in faith with God and your salvation with the Lord, practicing repentance, speaking in tongues, and uh, being baptized in the submersion of water. The second part was the admission where you're 18 or under 18 uh, to be able to vote or be a part of that membership. Now, the world in which we live in, we do get certain people who come in here who do not necessarily walk that certain walk that we all walk. And I'm pretty sure you can gather your inferences and, 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 and meet the conversation rather than blatantly just coming out by saying it. However, when those individuals do show up at our door, are we still accepting them? And are we still allowing them to have the same eligibility and emission status as a 
it's a, it was a tough, I didn't know how to phrase it. So I, I just, <laughs> I beat around the bush. I hopefully I narrowed it down as much. I've been waiting for this question to come up because it was cutting in and out, wasn't it? Because it is important for all of us to understand the difference between a legal document and a legal structure and a discipleship process. What we're discussing tonight is a legal document. It's necessary because without a legal document, we do not render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And it has impact in two areas. Number one, without proper legal structure, we cannot be treated as a nonprofit entity and therefore, we would be treated as a for-profit entity required to pay taxes. The federal government of the United States of America says if you will organize and substantiate that you are structured and are truly a not-for-profit entity, what is known by the IRS code as a 501c3, then we do not want to take you, take your taxes. We want that all to go into your not-for-profit endeavors, your charitable works. And the law of the United States is crystal clear that churches are 501c3 entities. They are charitable works, and the U.S. government wants all of its work to not be taxable. But they require us to legally structure ourselves so as to to preclude others from acting as if they are a charitable organization when they really are not. So these legal documents are required for that purpose. The second purpose is so that we are structured in a manner that the entity itself is guarded. Now, I know this would blow your mind, and I'm sure this would horrify you, but some of you may even know of this. But without these legal safeguards, a group of people could enter into our midst, camp out for a certain amount of time, and then do a hostile takeover. And I hate to tell you this, but this has happened to churches who said, we don't need all this legal mumbo-jumbo. And entities have come in, and they literally can take action that the government cannot unsort, the courts cannot unsort because we do not have ourselves legally structured correctly. They can sell our campus. They can sell it. They can pocket the money. They can depose whoever's leading. They can do any number of things. 
So legal documents set us right with the government in two ways. Number one, that we do not owe taxes. We are a not-for-profit entity. We are a 501c3. And number two, it safeguards that hostile takeovers can't happen. The law is inflexible. You all know this. If you follow the news, if you read any court cases, the law is inflexible. And whenever the law tries to be flexible, somebody gets mad about it. And if you don't follow various news reports, go back and study about Supreme Court justice nominees and how they're affirmed. Most of the time they're in trouble because somewhere they were more flexible and another party said, you're not allowed to be flexible. So the reality is, is there are obligations. There's a eligibility and eligibility for us is very simple. The new birth experience. Now, let's go to Mars' question, which is an excellent question, and I thank you for it. I've been waiting for somebody to even touch on it, to answer it. When a brand new person walks in here, we are not changing our posture of welcome. We're not changing our posture of love. We're not changing our posture of care. And we're not changing our posture of the ability for them to get involved. We want them to worship, we want them to learn, we want them to serve, and we want them to play. But we do believe that if they engage in those elements, there will come a point in their discipleship journey in which they will be called to repentance and will repent. They will hear the message of the offer of the forgiveness of sins in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus, and they will be baptized in the name of Jesus. And we believe that they will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. We not only believe this will happen, we believe this should happen. But we don't just believe it should happen, and we don't just believe it can happen. We believe if they engage in the discipleship journey that God is calling them to, it will happen. So that's where the eligibility comes from. But the process by which a disciple is made is a long and relationship-based as opposed to rules-based process. The bylaws that we're looking at right now are rules-based. There is no relationship with these bylaws. They are letter of the law. Why do they exist? Because the government says we will not allow you to not pay taxes and to be a 501c3 without them. And number two, you can't guard yourself. You don't have a way of distinguishing. Now, I want to ask all of you a question because I see many, many faces that have been at many, many annual business meetings. Can anybody tell me in your memory, and some of your memory goes back to my father's pastorate as well. Can anybody remember at an annual business meeting or any duly called business meeting me calling for a division of the house. Now, you might not recognize that terminology, so let me define it for you. Basically, I want in the center section all the ones who are eligible to vote, and the rest of you who are not eligible to vote, I want you out on the wings. Has anyone ever seen that done here? Okay. It happens every year at the United Pentecostal Church's General Conference. District Conference, it happens as well. There's a division of the house. 
And I feel bad as good people that I love, but they don't have a vote. They have to go sit in the wings or they have to sit back behind a line. I've never divided the house, but I've never come into, and my father before me, we never came into an annual business meeting or a duly called business meeting without the data and the ability to divide the house if legally necessary. We've tried to be kind to those who maybe aren't, according to the law, members, but they're on a discipleship journey. We welcome them. We want them to participate. If they put a ballot in, that's fine. But if they cause contention on the floor, somebody wants to get up and suddenly says, hey, we need to sell this property. You will see a side of me you've never seen before. And some of you think you've seen it. No, you've never seen it because I've never had to do it. But you will see a side of me you have never seen before because I will pull out the sword, which is the bylaws, and I will guard the entity, which is Newark United Pentecostal Church. And I'll divide the house. It'll take a little while, but I'll do it. And I have all the data I need. You ever wonder why I never come into an age business meeting without my laptop? Now you know why. Because all the data is right there on the fly. So our day-to-day life is not the bylaws. It's discipleship. People come in, we welcome them. They come in and they're not married, we welcome them. They come in and they're immoral and we welcome them. They come in, they're not filled with the Holy Ghost, we welcome them. And we engage them in a discipleship process. Now, when you fast forward to the obligations, you might look at those obligations and go, I thought I was a member, but I don't do all those things. First of all, I wouldn't ask whether I was a member. I'd ask, why am I not doing these obligations? That'd be my first question. But what are we going to do with you? We're going to keep loving you. We're going to keep creating a safe space for you. And we're going to keep believing that between you and God, you are going to grow in your discipleship to the place that every one of those obligations is being fulfilled. And those are the minimum, by the way, folks. That's the minimum to be a, quote, legal member. They're all Bible-based, and oh, newsflash, there's not a single one in there that hasn't been in our Bible law since 1999. So if any of you are having a crisis right now, it's just because you didn't read the bylaws. We didn't change anything up on you. We updated the language, and in fact, our bylaws are now better aligned to our discipleship process than they have ever been, which means that future members, when they look at a bylaws after 10 years and have never looked at bylaws, they will recognize all the elements in the obligations because we have been working the discipleship process accordingly. It is a tool. The membership of the church is a tool to be used for those two legal purposes when necessary. And in 40-some years, I've never had to pull that sword out. I have had one or two that maybe in the spirit they sensed that I had some kind of sword and they might not want to mess with me and therefore behaved, but I still never had to pull the sword out. 
We just conducted ourselves legally the way that we need to. And it's not been an issue. That's a great question. And I love that at every level, somebody has brought that question up because you all understand the importance of discipleship, not the importance of membership. So why do we have it? We're rendering unto Caesar what is his. But our goal, our lifestyle is discipleship. So the answer to the question is, Mar, I think the way you phrased it, are we going to treat these people the way that we've been treating them? Are we going to welcome them? Are we going to have space for them to engage with us and begin the road of discipleship or continue their discipleship process? Absolutely no question about it. Any follow-ups on that little discourse there? Did anybody else catch that up? Anybody else have a question with regard to that? Anybody else bothered about that piece? Because that's a very substantial section of what we're looking at tonight, which is the, the eligibility and the obligations. I'm not running. <laughs> what about the flip? The, the radicals. Now, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the courts and how courts work. And, and it sounds like mostly, you know, on a legal situation, this is more civil as opposed to criminal. And um, I don't really deal a lot with litigation and all that other jazz. But my my idea and interpretation of the whole situation is, is what... what are the grounds in which we are pushing towards when it comes to um, discrimination and uh, because I, what I can see is, is that a family comes in and they want to be, you know, they were a pastor at a, at a previous church and they submit a letter of transfer. You know, they've heard about how you're, are you at the door giving them a, a book of your bylaws and immediately telling them what you stand for and they're, they're guests. This is, these are like first timers. They're walking right through the door. And so the, the radical situation is, is that they're not looking to change their ways at any point in time. So in that situation, their stance is their stance. They're taking a radical stance. They're gonna they're gonna do what they're want. They they know what your obligations are. They they've read it, and so forth. And they're gonna continue walking the way they walk. Now, granted, we're we're trusting and believing in the in the uh, the operation of the, the new birth experience. But the fact of the matter is, is that the world in which we live in, people have choices, and they're gonna make their choices. And so. That's my question is how do you deal with? Thank you again for the question. No, I haven't met a single one of you at the door with our bylaws previously. We will not meet you at the door with the bylaws going forward. Absolutely unconditionally, no. That's not the point of the bylaws. 
One of the things that I pointed out to you is that you notice that in the bylaws, in fact, all of you, that's part of the update of the language. We hadn't added any obligations that weren't already there. We've just changed how we speak of them. You're going to pick up on all of that information that is letter of the law and the bylaws. You're going to pick that up from the moment that you, A, step through the door and you see worship, learn, serve, play. You're going to begin to pick up on that when you go through, if the name changes, discovering Jacob's well. And we talk about, as we did in small groups, in those 12 lessons, what are we about? What are our core values? You're going to pick up on them as we teach you discipleship classes and as you're in small groups. You're going to pick up on them as we teach you about leadership and as you get involved in different levels of volunteering. We will not use a legal document to make disciples. It's not its purpose. Not only is it not necessary, it's the wrong document. The legal document is actually one that is meant to be defensive. The discipleship process is our proactive process by which we influence and affect people. And that process will take longer, and we all know that, and that's why we engage with patience and with love. If the person comes in, however, and they want to push the legal argument, that's where we have an uncomfortable conversation where we say, well, no, according to our bylaws, you're not a member. But I'm less concerned with whether you're a member or not, and I'm more concerned with whether you are a disciple in a process of growing in your relationship with Jesus. I am not trying to create a club nor run a club. I'm trying to pastor a church and serve people in a manner that allows them to build relationship with God and from that relationship with God be transformed both in their being and in their actions. So it's two different documents. And I, I appreciate the question that's asked there. I absolutely appreciate the question there. Again, I point to you. Bylaws have been available to you. Every annual business meeting will say, if you'd like a copy of the bylaws, they're available to you, let us know. The bylaws are a safeguard. They're what give us job descriptions as, as we operate as officers of the church. They're what set structure. But the day-to-day -day life of the church is a life of disciple-making. All making disciples of all. That doesn't change. Okay? That doesn't change. Any other comments or questions? Brother Vincent, I have a question for you. Did you notice that we addressed your concern? Yes. Did we do it acceptably? <laughs> then, Elder, why are you sitting there quietly? Why aren't you asking me what's going on with it? All right, let me, I've put my elder on, on, on blast there. I'll give him a moment to collect his thoughts. Um, so some of you may remember that Brother Vincent, and actually you weren't the only one. There were others who, who addressed this with regard to if eligibility for membership is the new birth experience, repentance, 
baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, obviously that happens to people before they're 18. Second, if that happens to people before they're 18, Lil, I don't know if our air is set to turn off, but it feels a little warm in here. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just I'm on the hot seat, but it feels like it. Could you take a look and make sure that we have some we have some air moving? I don't need it real cold, just a little bit. Thank you. Just a little cool. Thank you. So we also want to affirm the involvement of young people, children, and youth. And uh, Brother Vincent represented that, and there were others who brought that up as well. And uh, you remember I punted when you brought it up. I said, we can discuss that. And, and I punted that because actually on the spot, there was a side of me that agreed with you, and there was a side of me that had something in the back of my head niggling at me that I was a little concerned about how to proceed with it. So here's our thoughts and what we're bringing to you. And this was vetted actually from a number of different levels, and we arrived at the solution starting first with ministry team coordinators, but then it was agreed with the senior pastoral team. They agreed with it, and the advisory board also talked some about it and, and felt comfortable leaving it where it was. And so here's, here's what we propose. Number one is that we absolutely want to affirm the value and the involvement of our children and our youth. In other words, those entities that are below 18. Membership has to be based upon the new birth experience. My brothers and my sisters, we are Pentecostal. We believe in John chapter 3. We believe in Acts 2.38. We will welcome anyone and everyone, but we have never, ever backed down or backed up from repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And I don't think we really have any intention of doing so anytime in the future. So that being a eligibility requirement stands regardless of age. But as we've noted, there are obviously occasions where we have young people who well before the age of 18 repent of their sins, are baptized in Jesus' name, and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. So what do we do with those? Remember what this document is. It's a legal document. It's not a discipleship document. It's not a document about community. It's a legal document. And that's the part that niggled in the back of my head because its purpose is different. It is designed to A, put us in right standing with the United States. And second, it's meant to safeguard us from hostile takeover. So that brings us to this question. Who has agency to vote? Anybody below the age of 18, the U.S. government says they do not have agency. Their parents have certain controls over them. But at 18, that changes. Now, Please understand, I don't think 18 is a magical age. The U.S. government could set it at 16. They could set it at 21. But what they have set it at is 18. That's the, where it is. You don't get to vote for the president or a congressman or a senator until you're 18. And it's down to the actual day. If you turn 18 one day later, 
you don't get the vote in that election. So what legally safeguards us, we're submitting to you, is to leave the voting at 18 because the entity we're trying to satisfy, the U.S. government and our state, that's the mark at which they say this person has agency. Everything younger, they have certain levels of agency, but it is still submitted to other parties who can control or at least influence them. The most obvious being parents or guardians. But we wanted to find a way to affirm the viability, the importance, and the activity and involvement of our younger, repented, baptized, and filled with his spirit, members of the community. And so what we fell upon was the idea that they would have influence through their voice, but not vote until they were 18. This seemed to me and to the other entities that I've worked this through that it would supply a affirmation and a conduit for their ability to participate in the community. So how does this play out? Annual business meeting. There's a debate on the floor about whether to have umbrella stands in the front of the church. We did have a debate many, many years ago about that. Thank you for not being that congregation. But we did. We had a big brouhaha one time. Somebody brought up, Sister Susan, you remember that? Sister Diane, you remember that debate about, about umbrella stands at the front of the church? Jesus have mercy. Anyway, we had that debate. Whether we should have usher stand, ushers out front with umbrella stands. Yeah, Joe, I'm telling you, we did. We've had some wild and wacky ones every once in a while. All right, so we had that debate. So let's assume we're having that debate again. And the young people have a real strong opinion about it. They want or don't want it. They don't get to vote on that resolution or that proposition, but they do get to stand and speak, and through their speech, they influence the constituency. They can speak in a manner that Brother Brian, who is opposed to umbrellas, he doesn't want umbrellas because he doesn't want to open the door with an umbrella. The impassioned speech of a 15-year-old talking about how her hair is going to get messed up because of the rain, and he really needs to take that into account, can move Brother Brian's hard heart. <laughs> and now he's able to say, you know what, I see another side of this. That young person did not vote. They did not have control, but they did have influence. And so what I'm submitting to you, again, coming through the vetting process that I've described to you, that thus far we felt that this picked up on your sentiment and many others that we need to find a way that young people who are eligible but not yet of legal age have participation, have a place of participation within the body. And where I came from it, where I got to it, was actually... Uh, uh, and I, I really felt bad. I'll admit to you, I'm feeling a little prideful here, but it was not me who actually thought of the solution. And I felt really stupid that I didn't. And I told everybody I was mad that I didn't think of it because I should have thought of it. But we already have that. The advisory board has members. They have voice and vote. But any ministerial 
any, any person who is licensed or of ministerial standing within Newark UPC has the right to attend the advisory board meetings. But if we gave them all vote, they would overwhelm the advisory board and defeat the purpose of the advisory board. So they have voice influence, but not vote, not control. And I really felt dumb that I hadn't thought of that, but I didn't another member, and that's why we're doing this process that is slow and methodical and even tedious, but that's why we're doing it because other people have other ideas that as smart as I am, I don't always have the ideas. And so that's what we're submitting to you is that we still need to, because it's a legal document, we need to align it with what we're trying to satisfy, namely the U.S. government. And the U.S. government says you do not have agency of voting until 18. But on the flip side, we want to acknowledge our young people. We want to acknowledge their value and their importance, even if they are there with their parents, where the parents can control them in one sense, that they in this format have the ability to speak and by their speech to influence but then we leave the vote itself to the adults. Any follow-up questions to that? I'm not gonna put Brother Vincent on the spot anymore. If he wants to speak, he can wave his head at me, but I'm not gonna, I've already been a little ornery, giving him a hard time already. So I will, I hope you're not offended, Elder. I was just having a little fun, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, for Brother Vincent's question, um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the, the idea of being 18 or, and under 18, it's still, to me, it follows this, this, you said the document is legal. And so when I look at the, when you start bringing up the, the concept of age and voting within the church, that's a, to me, it looks legal in that sense. So is it because we have that in place or whatnot, serving a purpose as the legality of being able to vote and you being recognized as an adult versus a child? Simple answer is yes. This is a legal document. We're trying to organize ourselves legally. So let's take the discipleship process versus the legal process. Same question. Somebody's not a member. We're in an annual business meeting. Do I divide the house? No. So if they handle themselves appropriately, we got a little 10-year-old little boy who's a geek. He's all into the business meeting. We got a 14-year-old young lady who's, she's just a nerd, and she thinks the business meeting is the coolest thing. I know, I know, it's like a unicorn, but let's go with me, okay? Go with me. And there's some resolution on the floor, or there's some motion, and there needs to be a second, and somebody, and they, and they participate within that. What am I going to do? I'm not going to embarrass them. 
not going to shut them down. We're going to operate. We're going to go ahead and carry forward. But if there's a problem, we need the ability to distinguish. And when that needs to be distinguished, the age of 18 is where it has to be. <laughs> so, so Lil, so Lil asked, what could be a problem? In my mind, when I say what could be a problem, it is where that I can sense that there is a, and again, this comes from being a pastor where I know who's, who's where in their discipleship process, that there is a growing consensus among people who are non-members to take the church in a direction it shouldn't go. And that's an uncomfortable place as a leader, but it's at that moment that one of the tools we have for leading is not just influence, but actually control. And the control would be divide the house and ask the membership what they think. And the big picture one that I gave you is somebody trying to sell the property or uh, somebody trying to say, let's take out a loan for half a million dollars when that's not the right thing to do. Okay, a lot of them have to do with financial. But it could be other things. Legally speaking, I need the tools and the senior pastoral team, if they succeed me, your leadership needs the tools. You need the tools to guard the body in a legal fashion. I'll run this. <laughs> if the 10-year-old seconds the motion or even makes the motion and the motion carries or does not, the and someone in the congregation, a legal voting member of the congregation is upset by it, we have at that point opened ourselves to a civil suit by allowing someone who is not eligible to do that to make or second a motion. It's all a legal thing. It's, it's, it, you know, the kid may be living better than most of the adults, but that's not the point. The point is a, a, a child cannot enter into a contract and that vote is part of a contract. Whoever's running the business meeting has to be discerning of that and, and find a member. You have to acknowledge. So just because that 10-year-old's hand up doesn't mean you, you just kind of act like you don't see them and you look for the next person who's an adult. There's a very simple way. You don't have to embarrass them any more than you have to embarrass the member or the non-member. Okay? Um, any other questions on this particular piece where we're kind of sitting on eligibility, admission, obligations. Nobody's had any questions about obligations. Do they all make sense to you? Again, I'm just prompting you that if there's a place, this is the place to ask the question. This is the place to contest what this is. We might have a solution to something that you're observing. I'd rather that you do it here in the vetting process and we at least answer you, if not adapt or change, rather than saying, I don't like that one provision, and then you get to the end of the whole process and you vote the whole thing down simply because of one point you wouldn't bring up. So that's that's where um, 
that's the point of vetting this. Okay. And again, I don't want to belabor it, but I also want to give you ample opportunity to be able to, to address that. Did you have a, Two obligations? Okay, that's fine. Uh, I think this is better. Okay. Uh, I think this is a question in, in terms of um, as far as membership goes for those who are unable to be with us in person locally on the grounds. And that how in which are they acknowledged and identified as a member and then they are unable to do they have to check in with somebody in terms of uh you know they they go to a a service weekly or or they're serving in some sort of capacity somewhere or another are the is there going to be a clause on maybe it'll come up later on where those individuals who are unable to be with us in person um, will be considered um, meeting the standards for membership and admission. So this is an excellent point because we're moving into an era in which the world is shrinking. And we now broadcast our services. There are people who are engaged. In fact, I have already brought to you one member who does not currently reside in Newcastle County of Delaware, who serves currently on the advisory board, which is Sister Carolyn Harrington. So what, I, what I'd like to do to answer the question, which is a good one, uh, is to simply ask you to look through those seven obligations. And to my understanding, each of them can be fulfilled not based upon where you're currently living. So, for example, number one is to engage in worship through faithful and consistent participation in a weekly worship service. I happen to know, I'm going to use Sister Carolyn as an example, if she's watching tonight, which I have a very sneaky suspicion that she is. I apologize, but you're on the hot seat with me, Carolyn. Every single time our broadcast goes live, one of the chat features is you'll see Sister Carolyn say, good morning, church. The reason she says good morning is because it's still morning where she's at. It's afternoon for us, but it's still morning where she's at. So she's engaged, and I would never have brought her to you if she were not faithful in her attendance, not only in that I know that it's online, but also knowing conversation with her about where she lives because of family and the accessibility to church. If we were not an option for her, she would be in trouble. There's not churches available to her, not because of her being picky, but because of we don't have churches, okay? Number two, the engage and learn through completion of all appropriate membership and discipleship classes and through faithful, consistent participation in a small group. Both of those can be fulfilled online. Number three, engage and serve through serving the community with a small group and through serving the church by a manner that advances the vision and the mission. Both of those can be fulfilled online. Most of you don't know this, but all of those great small group lessons that you all have been used to getting, um, the primary wordsmiths and, and editors of that, um, two 
of those, I won't name all that are involved in that, but two of those that played a pivotal role have either left or are leaving the teaching team that develops the curriculum. I'm one of them, and Desi Lugo was another one. Sister Carolyn stepped into that role because she actually is an editor for our movement. She edits books for Pentecostal Publishing House. I knew that, and so I said, hey, Carolyn, would you like to get involved? I'm not sure I'm always happy that I did that because she's a hard editor. She's kind of bossy. But anyway, she makes our lessons better. Love you, Carolyn. You know I can't do this without being ornery at you. So those can be fulfilled online. Number four, engage in play through faithful, consistent participation in a small group. There's some limitations to some of these, but I still would argue they can be fulfilled. Number five, participate in giving through consistent contributions based on their increase to ties, offerings, and missions. Mail works still, but digital giving. Number six, abide by the bylaws of this assembly and accept the Articles of Faith of the United Pentecostal Church International. And number seven, secure a letter of transfer in case of moving and unite with another church. So these obligations, and by the way, the overarching one, which is to continue in a lifestyle that is pursuing holiness, there's none of these that preclude a person who doesn't actually live in our geography from doing so. Now, your question does raise some ethics, which is, do we want people coming to church here when they have the option of in-person church? The answer is no. I'm not trying to build a kingdom, and neither should you be. But there are circumstances where it was rough for Christians to be Christian, and God has now opened a door where they have options. We need to go cautiously and carefully, but I don't yet see a conflict in those scenarios of them being able to participate and be members of the congregation. Obviously, the eligibility piece is the new birth experience. Then the admission is based upon age and where they're coming from, and then finally the obligations as we've run through them. I do think that if there's another option, they need to choose that option as much as you can, but we don't control people either. So if a person insists they do not have an option somewhere else, I'm not going to tell them you can't tune into our broadcasts, you cannot participate in our small groups, you cannot contribute to our assembly in, in, in serving, you cannot come and visit with us and play with us and be a part of us, you cannot give to us. I'm not going to do that because that's a level of control that I think we've all gotten into trouble before in churches. We are not controlling people, period. Do we have an online question? Oh, you have a personal question. Um, to piggyback on... Martavis's question, is there a way for people like Carolyn who are members but farther away to vote at our business meetings? Currently, no. And the reason is, is because the legal bar, the safest legal bar on that level of business has to currently state that it, you're in person. However, I do anticipate that sometime over the next decade, could be even quicker than a decade, but sometime over the next decade, 
technology and systems are going to continue to advance to a scale that the church can amend its bylaws and embrace the ability to securely do it. But I don't have that system apparent to me at this point. And as much as you all are convinced that I am going to change everything about the church, I really am not trying to overchange. I'm trying to only change what is necessary. And in this one, and Sister Carolyn is an example where I very, very, very clearly am concerned about that. So what we do is we will do a closed broadcast to those members that we know are elsewhere where they can at least know what is happening. But no, they do not have vote. That is correct. That is correct. And that is a judgment call on my part, on the part of the pastoral team. And I will take that question that I will ask. I am open to taking that actually ahead of time, taking that to our legal counsel, our Delaware legal counsel, to see whether she in fact knows of a solution that would be acceptable. I am open to doing that. Our legal counsel in Delaware is a, is a lady that's in the Northeast Church. Uh, she uh, and Regina and I used to do youth work back when I was very, very young. And Mindy is actually a past Delaware Bar Association president, uh, very active in the Bar Association in Delaware. And so um, I spoke with her. I went for several months panicking because I had legal counsel, but I didn't have Delaware legal counsel. And I was pulling my hair out. And finally, one night, I'm going to bed and the Lord just spoke her name to me. And I went, oh, what an idiot, because I've known this person. I can talk to this person. I can be extremely clear and, and interact. And I have no question in her legal uh, background and her legal skills. And so um, I'm like, this is a no brainer. And so when I spoke with her, she said, Stephen, I'd be happy to, to help you with this. Um, and so I will bring that question up before her because it would be a question that's not just legal. It would have to do specifically with Delaware because you're dealing with people from other states. So how does that work when you're dealing with a corporation inside of a particular state? So I will bring that up. But currently, to answer your question, currently, the draft of bylaws that you have does not make provision for that. Our annual business meetings, you are required to be present. The reason that, taking Sister Carolyn's example, the reason that she can serve as an advisory board member is because we have operated our advisory board and the bylaws provide for some of those subcommittee meetings. We've operated those remotely for years. We've done it when we needed to before COVID and we've definitely done it through COVID. And I frankly have not gone back to in-person. I'm not saying we won't, and there isn't an occasion where we might, but most of the work of financial accountability each quarter and policies can be done even better over Zoom, not just well, but better over Zoom. There's a way to securely vote in that scenario, but again, it's much more constrained. So it's about security. When it comes to voting, it's about security. I don't need to go into all of the story of that, do I? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make me go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Any, any other questions? As you're thinking of that, I will mention to you, some of you may have seen an earlier draft. Most of you wouldn't have, but have seen an earlier draft in which we did not have our name as Jacob's Well, but rather we had our name as the Ministries of Jacob's Well, doing business as Jacob's Well. Well, our Delaware Legal Council actually pointed me to something I didn't understand, which is when you incorporate in the state of Delaware, there are a host of endings, not just ink. You can use incorporated, you can use um, LLC, you can use a number of different endings, and Jacob's Well actually is available. I thought it wasn't available, and that's why we were having to do it. It's actually available when we just simply change one of those endings. So currently, incorporated all spelled out, is available. And so we don't have to go through doing business as or going into each county. We get to just go straight forward with the name that we, we are proposing to you, which is Jacob's Well, and then simply incorporated. So um, for those of you that might have seen an earlier iteration or heard those discussions, those were actually, um, that's why you try to have legal counsel when you can, they can, because there's information they know that you don't know. I'm a smart guy, I do my research, but I'm not a lawyer. And uh, so she was able to take care of that very quickly and say, no, no, Steve, you don't have a problem. You don't need to be that complicated. Um, so that is what we intend to do. I can't reserve it yet because it's only good for 120 days. But I will pay the $75 on behalf of the church about 120 days before the end of March so that it's reserved. And then if you vote for that change, it will be there for us and we can turn in that paperwork and that becomes ours. It'll become registered with the state of Delaware and lock that in. So that's something that I wanted to say to all of you that you wouldn't necessarily know to ask, but I wanted to point out to you within the name, okay? Anybody else have any other questions? I don't wanna belabor it, we're at 7.30, but I also don't wanna rush you. You will leave at eight o'clock. But if we've reached a point where this section, you don't have any further questions, you understand it. Again, I'm not trying in these sessions to convince you which way to vote. That's not the purpose. The purpose is, is that you would treat this in good faith so that we thoroughly vet it. We ask any questions we have. We understand the decisions that have been made in the structure and then you can take it as a whole and decide whether you can affirm or negate it. And that I hope you will do after prayer and much thought and careful consideration. All right, I'm gonna do something funny here. How many of you are done and you're ready to go home? Say aye. Anybody want to sit here for another 20 minutes and ask some more questions? You don't get to vote twice. The yay counted as I want to go home. All right. All right. All right. So in summary, for me, what this means is that the preamble and Article 1 and Article 2 do not have from your questions I do not have any substantial changes that need to be addressed here. And so we're kind of provisionally locking that in.
That is the way that it is. What I will do is in the next, um, you will see that it will go down on the website. On Path Forward, I will take that down. The document will still be there. But we will be vetting in the month of July with the ministry team coordinators. We will be vetting with the advisory board in the month of August, Article 3. And then I will repost, if there are any changes, any amendations, even minor ones, I will repost that to the website the last two weeks of August, basically. So you can read now, but then go back and reread that Article 3, and we will meet September 4th, and we will do the same thing. I have a sneaky suspicion that you're going to have more questions about Article 3 because that's the meat of the change. That's where the structure of the officers, the structure of things is. I will tell you in anticipation of that, that the structure of the advisory board and the structure of the board of trustees has not changed. It is more clearly organized so that it flows, but we have not changed anything in those structures. The main thing that has changed is with regard to the role of the pastor because in the place of a single pastor is now a team, and how that interfaces with those boards and the rights, the duties, and the responsibilities of that team. And that has been completely rewritten to represent both how we've been operating with me and how we would propose that it would operate going forward with the team. So that's where the bulk of changes are is in this next section. So I would encourage you to read it. Maybe you want to print it out so that you got it or you bring your laptop or your phone, whatever. But we will thoroughly vet that on September 4th. Between now and then, you are welcome to bug me. This is one of my primary jobs in this season. You are welcome to come talk to me. You can write me emails. You can call me and I will answer you. You can be like Martavis and bring me 15 questions and I will answer every single one of them, okay? This is a vetting time, but I wanted to create an avenue where for those that aren't comfortable doing that or just simply want to hear the questions that others raise, that's what this format is. And we'll do this again on a Sunday evening on September 4th. All right. So to those of you online, thank you for tuning in. This will be in our media archives. So for those of you that really, you, you maybe you fell asleep partway through this and you want to come back and listen to it again. Or for those of you that need something to fall asleep to at home, this whole thing is recorded. It'll be in the media archives. You can watch it again. You can tap into it. But at this point, I think we have vetted this to the extent that I can tell with this congregation and with the questions related to the preamble, Articles 1 and 2. And so with your permission, why don't we stand and uh, thank the Lord for the opportunity to be involved. Do you realize you all are involved? I know it's not as exciting, but do you realize you're involved with something that only happens about every 20 years? Some of you will never see this again because you're going to glory before we do this again. Others of you might be around for it again, but you have an opportunity here to see something that does not happen every day. So I encourage you to be aware of that, to be aware of that. So let's lift our hands and thank the Lord for being with us. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you for the opportunity of serving you I thank you for each and every person that's here tonight that has contributed, that has listened, that is deliberating with us, that is involved in this process. 
God, I thank you for each of them, and I love them, and I pray that your blessings would be upon all of us. Let our week be productive. Let our week be a week in which we can shine our light in this lost and dying world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And would everybody say amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming out again. You're dismissed.